0: It's a sell-out for the paper boys as a general election suddenly looms in sight. You're joking. Not, Not another one? Another- I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election. So, you're probably all electioned out by now. Even without all of the news coverage, there's still tons of other podcasts talking about who's up and who's down after the shock result, who's in and out in the reshuffles, and asking how so many polls and commentators could have got it so, so wrong.
1: It's certain, and Mrs May must be aware of it, that for the next seven weeks, she's rolling the dice. And what appear to be certainties now can change into great uncertainties over this period.
0: So, right here on the weekly economics podcast, we'll be taking a deep dive beneath the surface of this election. After previous campaigns were dominated by talk of the deficit, debt and the financial crisis, were people right to say economics was conspicuously absent from the debate this time around? Or were there deeper undercurrents at play? There is an argument about what you do about it, but who do you think of, even if you're going to say, look, we won't touch them, who do you think of as rich? What level of earning does someone have to
2: have? I think think it's actually not that helpful a figure. Well, the the right question is, who who is the richest, (laughs) so... And barring
0: another snap election, what will this mean for the big choices about the economy facing us over the next few years?
2: With due respect, it's not seeking a bank check when I say to people, look
0: what we've done already.
2: What happens after this election is going to be, well, more important for the future of Northern Ireland than what happens in the changing of a seat.
0: My name's Ayesha Thomas-Smith and this week we're talking about the economic causes and consequences of the general election result. Stay with us. So, to help us work out how economics played into this election, we're joined by Principal Director of Policy and Advocacy at the New Economics Foundation, Andrew Pendleton. Hi, Andrew. Hello. And we're also joined for the first time by Sarah Mahmood, Senior Economist at NEF. Hi. Hi. And we've also got a very exciting special guest with us today, a special correspondent at the New Statesman and co-star of the New Statesman podcast, our rival podcast, Stephen Bush.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. It's very nice. So, we usually start the programme by looking back at the big stories of the last seven days, but apart from the developing repercussions of the shock election result, one story has rightly dominated the news this week and last week, and that's the terrible tragedy of the fire at Grenfell Tower in Kensington, West London. So lots of questions are being asked right now about how something so tragic could have happened, could have been allowed to happen. So Andrew, Sarah, Stephen, do you have any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've got I've, uh, two two personal reflections re- really on it. One is as as a parent, the sheer kind of anguish and human tragedy of the event. It's um, it's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? And and um, and many of those stories just unbearable. Uh, so your heart goes out to any of the families involved in that. And and secondly, um, I'm a resident myself of a block which is managed by a housing association and, and um and still on on land that's owned by the council then and and, um, and we, we have battles, you know, week to week with the owners and managers of our block um, And I think one of the things for me that comes out of this is or is emerging out of this is that the people who The tenants know best they know the problems of their blocks my neighbors Intimately know some of them have been in the block for many many years. They know what's happening where the problems are what needs doing and their voices are the ones we need to listen to as we try and deal with this and The problems on the many other blocks across the country.
1: Yeah, I think that's it It does feel like a watershed moment in in British politics you and it obviously has so many undercurrents and the the neglect of the public realm that then obviously it's become more and more obvious. I think it's one of those things it has been like boiling a frog. You In your own city, you don't notice it or your own part of the world. You visit somewhere you know regularly, you go, oh, gosh, there are more homeless people on the streets. You come back and you see it. And, but I think Andrew's exactly right. In the, the 5,000 cost if you think about what that is on a works bill across 600 homes that's that, that is less than 20 20 pence right that is something then if if the people of the block even ignoring the political dimensions which shouldn't be going away, but if if the people of the block had more control over the running of their block that is a cost that the people of the block even the ones living in very deep poverty could have easily absorbed in their, in their work bill. So it does show them as well as the kind of change in how we do economics, there does also have to be a step change in how and who runs public services and they need to be run by public service users, not by, in this case, a remote arm's length management organisation, but by tenants and leaseholders.
0: What do you think, Sarah?
3: Well, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's firstly just horrifying and maddening, to be honest. Um, and it comes in the context of over a year of dramatically shifting housing policy, you know the, the the way social housing in particular is spoken about, the way the tenants of social housing are spoken about is, is is just I think degenerated very rapidly. But I would I would sort of echo the idea that at the moment it's tenants' voices that really need to be at the heart of this conversation. It's the victims of this this awful
0: disaster that really need to be at the heart of it. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Um, If listeners want more information about what they can do to support the people affected, um, grenfellsupport.wordpress.com is a really good resource for information on how to help. So the big question this week is, did economics swing the election? So there's a mantra that commentators often use when it comes to elections, a line from Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign, it's the economy, stupid. If you look at the document we produced, John, which, you know, the conservatives have not produced any costings in terms of what their manifesto pledges are.
1: The idea that I have to go to the manifesto to see what the budget's going to have in it is crazy.
2: So how much will it cost? I'll give you the figure in a moment.
0: You don't know it? Elections are supposed to be won or lost on economics, but in the recent general election here in the UK, interrupted by the terrible terrorist attacks in Manchester and London, and coming a year after the referendum, some people have said that the economy dropped down the agenda. But is that true? We might not have heard the words debt and deficit as much as we did in 2015, but were economic issues really underlying some of the big discussions of this election? Hidden behind a magic money tree, perhaps? what role did the economy play in the general election and what are the economic consequences of the result? So, let's start with that question. Andrew, do you think it's right to say that this wasn't an election about economics?
2: Well, I'm I'm going to fudge the answer, to be honest, (laughs) because it it kind of was not it wasn't, I think, is the... Is certainly the way I see it. It's it wasn't in a in an explicit sense, and a lot of you know macroeconomists, people who look at the whole of the economy, um, were frustrated by that. I think they were fr- frustrated by the lack of debate about what we should do, for instance, with interest rates and monetary policy and fiscal policy and so forth. I think that was a was something that came through from you know a lot of the economics blogs. Um, so in that sense, it wasn't. But actually, the the undercurrent, I, I think, is still. Um, you know, Aditya Chakraborty and the Guardian, I think, put this really well. It, it, this was the first kind of post-crash election. And I think that's right. It's taken us 10 years for the political and, and economic ramifications of what we were well, nearly 10 years of, of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the finance crisis and then the economic crisis to to begin really to experience it and the, the, the thing that always astonished me about those series of events at the time was that they didn't trigger the kind of indignation and, and unrest that you might have thought because actually, you know, we were all fleeced uh, and we are still being fleeced as a consequence of it but actually perhaps this is what's happening now, you know, we're seeing this gradual revolution unfolding where, you know, one institution after another and this links back to what's happened at Grenfell Tower this week and the consequences. For the housing management organisation and the council, one institution after another, as as um, as come under scrutiny and come into, and fallen into crisis, and I think people are are reacting to that, and that's given you a very volatile electorate.
0: So the economic issues were there.
3: They so just they're there. They're, un,
2: they're under the surface, I think.
0: I, I think
3: it's actually in one way been more about economics. There's a real tendency to think of the economy as like this abstract, essentially an abstract number in the form of GDP growth. But this election was very much about things like employment and wages and housing and fiscal policy. So how, how we spend revenues or how we don't spend it. More, more pertinently and, and who gets taxed and why. Those are really fundamental economic questions and they really relate to our economic system. Um, so I think the debate about the economy is actually been democratised almost in the last general election.
0: How much do we know about the reasons why people voted the way that they did? Were people motivated by economic issues?
1: Well so we've only sort of got the YouGov uh, model of the election and the Ashcroft model. We don't yet have the British Electoral Survey which will will tell us a great deal more. But what? is is clear from both of those is that it? partly it was a older young cities versus towns the obvious divides and obviously university towns in some ways it was a values election but it was also oddly enough to use a phrase an enough is enough election people whose wages had gone down who were seeing the public services collapsing um, said yeah I've had enough
2: the other aspect which kind of leaps out of well doesn't leap actually it's they're very flat in the youGov um, data and it's because it's kind of the first time it's been very flat, and that's because across all of the group class groups A, B, C, etc., etc., actually there's a very there's a very even split of people voting either essentially either Labour or Tory, and uh, and and that for me speaks to a very divided nation, and I think that's the biggest mm-hmm. challenge really for whoever governs is going to have to deal with those divisions, and those divisions are. So, you know, Stephen's already mentioned the age division is a very significant one. Remain leave is a very significant one. Urban, non-urban or non-big city is a very significant one. They, and they're quite polarized divisions. So de- dealing with those is is very complex in the context of of governing and making policy. And I think that's that makes it a very difficult situation. In a way, I think we have to take that back to the... To where we started the conversation and, and talking about, therefore, the role of people and people's voices being really key in dealing with some of the underlying problems, uh, politicians and institutions need to be more humble and listen.
0: So let's let's dive into that, What in, into what happens next, uh, as you raised, Andrew. So at, at the moment, we know that the Conservatives um, have said that they're trying to make a deal with Northern Ireland's uh, Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, to support their minority government. Um, so ha- how will this deal affect the uh, economic policies that the Conservatives go with?
2: I think it's a very difficult question to answer because obviously the shape of the deal is forming as we speak, may not even yet still be formed. Stephen probably knows more about this than I do, about the latest on the on the doing of the deal. But um, of course everything that's happening is still happening, and again we'll come on to this, but it's still happening against the backdrop of the certainty of us having to go through that process of negotiating Brexit post the triggering of article 50 and it, it's it's um you know there isn't there isn't really the the almost certainly isn't a massively good outcome to that in in terms of macroeconomy mm-hmm. and so therefore um by all means sir and challenges but in one respect i suppose if the dup are pushing for a softer brexit then in fact their a, a, a impact on the macroeconomy could be benign.
1: I think the best way to think of is is they're a traditionally conservative party uh, so they are not Thatcherites, they're kind of sort of pre a pre-neoliberal conservative party so they are socially conservative but they are more sort of Economic, they're genuinely economically conservative. So uh, they will be more into a larger amount of public services. They they need a frictionless border between the, the, the North and the South. That probably means it's very hard for Britain to leave the customs union. And they will want to deliver spending for their own electorates, which does mean that the magic money tree will be popping up all, all over the, the North of Ireland. And I think that's interesting for a variety of reasons even if the government has a situation where it is continuing to pursue public spending cuts while increasing and being seen to increase public spending in Northern Ireland, that kind of means the political support for the government's agenda of, of, of fiscal retention gets harder and harder to defend because they have basically now sold the pass on the idea that austerity isn't a choice. So I think it. It does mean a softening of the government's uh, fiscal stance, just because I don't see how they can possibly do one in one kingdom and not the others.
0: Sarah, what do you think? Do you think that this election marks the end of austerity? Um, Well, I think, actually, the last spring budget
3: marked the end of austerity. Uh, Well, not the end of austerity, but certainly a loosening of what austerity means. In the Conservative manifesto, they said they would just kind of stick to the plan that uh, the Chancellor had already laid out. In contrast to Osborne's like really strict, will balance the books by, well, increasingly mm. <laughs> higher and higher years. These fiscal rules have a, a much looser in the sense that there's more discretion on the part of the Chancellor to judge whether a certain level of spending is temporary or not, so whether it's in response to shocks. And that, that obviously was a response to Brexit. Um, so he gave himself some wiggle room um, to really absorb the shocks to the economy that that might bring. Interestingly, actually, the IFS projected that, well, this was going off before we had disappointing growth figures in the first quarter. But the IFS projected that that gave him about £25 billion worth of wiggle room in 2020-21. Um, although they raised some concerns about how that wiggle room might be used or magiced out of nowhere. He's also got a slightly looser cap on the the so-called welfare cap, but he's choosing not to use this at the moment. But at the end of the day, we're still looking at additional cuts of around fifty billion by um, 2020 2021 um, according to the the last budget. So there's still cuts to come, and um, they're likely
0: to be very deep. Great news! Yeah. <laughs> so in the, in in the context of um, of an unstable government as, as i think we've discussed um what are some of the big economic issues that some of the other big economic issues that they might be faced with a lot of stuff is, is stemming out of,
3: of brexit and political uncertainty um not least the really Big drop in the currency that has happened since the uh, since the referendum, and also actually since the uh, political instability caused by the general election, and because we are a country that imports more than it exports, um, we're seeing that manifested in prices. We are we are actually seeing inflation rising quicker than the Bank of England was actually expecting back in May. So inflation's up at two point nine percent now. At the same time, we have just had some not great news in terms of wages, real wages, so accounting for prices, have fallen in April, between April last year and April this year. And this is part of a really long-term pay squeeze on households. So when you you pile on austerity measures in the form of welfare cuts and working-age benefit freezes, this means that households are really, really feeling the pinch. And that is... Not just bad for those households, but it's bad for the wider economy because we're so heavily dependent on household consumption. It's made up 60% of our GDP growth. And the latest GDP expenditure breakdowns have shown that the growth in household consumption is starting to decrease. It didn't slow down as rapidly after Brexit because people have been reliant on consumer credit. But, of course, that comes with its own issues as well. That's, that's just kind of kicking the can down the road mm. and storing up issues for the future. So we've got really serious imbalances in the economy. We're really dependent on debt. And ultimately, I think it's about deciding who we want to bear the risk as we readjust as we deal with Brexit. So it's all well and good talking about public debt, but we need to really, really start thinking about private debt and soon.
2: Against all of this, of course, is the is the you know the ongoing volatility of politics. And I was really interested in Stephen's view since you hear about you know what 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 are the scenarios for the next few weeks, months, year or so, because actually what profoundly affects, for instance, what Cyrus just said about whether we are going into another round essentially, a round of pretty deep cuts mm-hmm. or not. What kind of level of confidence business is going to have, for instance, in what sort of Brexit we get, is going to be hugely determined by those political forces, and it just seems to me to be so volatile still.
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it is an incredibly febrile uh, time. My instinct, which obviously it may turn out to be as hugely wrong as, as so many of my instincts have turned out to be, is that. Um, <laughs> then what will happen is the increased wriggle room we saw in the last budget will be as nothing to the next one. They, they will cobble together some kind of very expensive deal with the DUP to get their, their stuff through. They've had a near-death experience, the government, in terms of the consequences of austerity, not least because they are very aware that the sort of re- recovery was a lot of people under patient train going, do you know what, I need the spending, I'm going to put it on my credit card. Uh, so, my instinct is we will start to see a much looser uh, fiscal agenda, just because that is the only way they can continue to get political support for their real priorities: low regulation, low tax, etc., etc. And actually, there suddenly is a bigger parliamentary majority for bigger and looser public spending. Yeah, you know, if, if you went anywhere in England, you saw a poster about school cuts. I think they will make incredibly sure that that poster cannot exist at the next election.
2: Uh, uh, just wonder though whether there's a, um, it's hard to judge how much political space, so for instance surely now moving interest rates off their kind of lower bound and starting to push Mm. them up, you know not relying so heavily on monetary policy starting to pull more fiscal levers and so forth, I mean just would naturally be the thing that a government now would do but there's still a lot of political risk inherent in doing that, particularly moving interest rates up at the moment and um, I just wonder how much space government currently has to do that how how can it operate in a relatively constrained space because it's it's within that volatile environment it seems to me to be it's it's a it's a difficult move to make
3: it's a i think it's a difficult move in terms of like adopting different fiscal levers but i think you know the, the strain is showing at the bank of england um we had a relatively interesting monetary policy committee decision this week where people are actually split on whether to raise interest rates or not, given how high inflation is going. But they're in sort of exposed the fragility that comes with trying to deal with potential shocks with essentially cheap money, with with plentiful cheap credit. To a certain extent, I think we've opened all the sluices we did in the last crisis. It's difficult to see really how monetary policy can come riding to the rescue and that means we do have to start really thinking about the role of the state,
0: really thinking about you know
3: how how they steer the
0: economy. So we've touched upon it uh, quite a few times already but um, what, what about Brexit? So Stephen what do you think the impact of this election will have will be on the Brexit negotiations?
1: I think it opens up the potential for a, a much less economically destructive version of, of Brexit. Obviously the main way you do that is actually not any of this stuff about free movement, but it's simply about accepting that you have to have shared rules to trade, and so Britain will continue to be subject to the judgments of the European Court of Justice. The flip side of that is, of course, quite literally as we speak, we are getting closer and closer to the Article 50 process coming to a sort of its automatic end. Don't forget, it's shorter than it looks because of the six months needed for the other European nations to ratify the deal. So it means the parliamentary arithmetic for a softer Brexit is there, but the timetable which leads to us leaving without a deal by accident is also more real than it was before the election and the
2: negotiators in europe are are an awful lot more organized and ready for this than the uk government and and you know that's the the most striking thing is you can see them almost kind of sharpening their talons as they've seen the election play out of course their preference would still be for no Brexit, but given that they're going to have to negotiate the process and given that they'll they'll already have worked out their strategy and given that there is, still is not one here, uh, there still isn't a strategy. There's a, there's a likely political course, and I think Stephen's absolutely right about what that would be, but there is no strategy. There never has been one, and that's in a way profoundly worrying for us and a lot more comforting for the European mainland because essentially what the European mainland wants to show and is demonstrating very capably at the moment is that um, you know Europe's actually okay and it's the UK that's got the problem.
0: Okay so if we do manage to get our, ourselves together in time to actually get into the room, uh, realistically what should any Prime Minister be trying to get out of the negotiations in light of this election?
3: Uh, so first and foremost I think we absolutely have to secure the rights of EU citizens that are living in the UK and you would hope by extension that would secure the rights of UK citizens living in the EU. There's there's also the fact we don't really understand what the impact of Brexit is going to be on people's jobs, on on work. The Resolution Foundation published a study uh, recently that that just showed that businesses in general are really, really underprepared. So I think we have to understand what the impact on people is going to be and what the impact on employment is going to be and work back from there. If we did lose access to the single market, I think it's undoubted that we would have a really sharp dislocation, as they say, in the economy. It's not just things like trade tariffs. It's non-tariff boundaries. It's things like banks that serve people who trade across the European border, not being able to deal with both bits of the trade deal and that causing extra costs and everything. There's so, so many details that I think if we don't want to be a member then there has to be some kind of strategy that deals with all those elements. I think also, like, you know, we've seen to tragic effect this week, what happens when you don't have strong regulations that protect people. Mm. If we're not going to follow EU regulations, we really, really need to be having a conversation about regulation as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd echo that. Um, a lot of my policy background is on the environment, and, and clearly, there's a raft of environmental regulations that have been very that have been held in very low esteem in the UK, particularly in the UK government. However, they're critically important. The things that allow organisations to bring legal cases against the government when they try and, you know, ruin parts of the natural environment, for instance places that people hold dear, species that we hold dear, and so forth. So those things are things that we need to preserve and write into UK law. It's absolutely critical. I think
1: in terms of why I think people uh, voted to leave, I think there were three reasons. Upset at what was going on, and kind of the consciousness of the financial crisis, the promise of more money for the public services, Mm -hmm. and... Control over uh, over sort of all immigration into the EU. Actually, in terms of the average Leave voter and the average, you, you can sort of get all of that. You accept a massive loss of sovereignty because you say you will follow every rule that comes out of the EU, but you will no longer set it. And you continue to pay, actually, probably slightly more into the into the EU for you know Europol, et cetera, et cetera, and for participation in the single market. But you opt out. You are effectively our Norway, but with immigration instead of instead of fish. In terms of the freedom of, of whoever runs the government to do what they like in terms of economic policy, social policy, that is that is a fairly massive loss of year. You know, it is, becomes, you are governed by facts. You know, that is the, the Norwegian experience. But in terms of avoiding massive job losses, planes not flying, potential financial crisis because we quite literally can't see parts of the financial system anymore, that, I think, depressingly, is probably the best... The best deal available than actually keeps the things that people want, apart from, unfortunately, the one bit I liked, which is that there will not be money that we're not sending to the EU for public services. In fact, we will almost certainly be sending more.
0: Yeah. All right. So, a lot more uncertainty coming down the pipeline, but perhaps it's not all doom and gloom. Maybe, just maybe. So thanks Andrew, Sarah and Stephen for joining me uh, to have a chat about the election. Um, And Stephen, if people have enjoyed listening to you today, which I'm sure they have, where else can they hear you?
1: You can hear me on the New Statesman podcast, where actually since the election I've been a lot more cheerful than I have today. (laughs) (laughs) It's great, yeah, give it a listen, it's cool.
0: I will, that sounds great. All right, so we'll (laughs) be using the rest of this series to talk about some of the big issues that we've touched on in this episode in more detail. So the Brexit negotiations, the fallout from the election, and we'll also be talking about the stuff that was conspicuously absent from this election campaign, like the environment. Make sure you've subscribed to the weekly economics podcast in the app of your choice to get our new episodes every week. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do think about leaving us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcasts app. It only takes a minute and it really helps us climb the charts, which helps other people discover the show. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and Hugh Jordan and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week.